0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you out today, and I want to make an announcement. We took our Christmas Eve offering, and that happened across all of our campuses. It was to go to plant churches who would then reach out and take care of orphans and widows, and you gave $360,000, and we praise God for that. Um, I want you... To know how that is going to work itself out, we'll keep you updated throughout the year, but that is going to plant upwards to 1,500 churches, and given our current uh, track record that we've had these last few years of church planting, we expect that'll mean about 10,000 brand new believers who are followers of Christ. We'll be able to take care of 400 widows and orphans through that, and because we had many first-time guests that told us they were here, we donated some extra money, so we'll send 230 Bibles to these churches, several copies of the Jesus film to be used in various villages, as well as audio Bibles to be given away. So I want you to know God is using you to make a huge difference in Asia through these gifts. God bless each one of you, and I thank you in Jesus' name. So we're in this series called Reset, and last weekend, WE TALKED ABOUT THE FACT THAT WHAT WE'RE TRYING TO DO IS LEARN TO LIVE LIKE JESUS. BUT WE KNOW WE CAN'T DO THAT ON OUR OWN. IT'S HUMANLY IMPOSSIBLE. WE THANK GOD THAT THOSE OF US WHO ARE FOLLOWERS OF CHRIST HAVE His SPIRIT LIVING IN US TO HELP US LIVE LIKE JESUS. AND IT IS A PROCESS THAT WE'RE GROWING INTO. WE HAVE THE WORD OF GOD TO GUIDE US. SO WE SAID, LET'S RESET OUR FOCUS. AND LAST WEEKEND I SAID, YOU KNOW, ONE OF THE AREAS WE NEED TO RESET OUR FOCUS ON IS GOD'S UNCONDITIONAL LOVE FOR US, LEARNING TO live and appreciate the fact that the Father of Jesus is very fond of you and me. Well, I love it when you take the messages seriously. And we had a 12-year-old student who took it seriously, and she went home, and she took a project on for herself, her own initiation. She created a card to put on the mirrors, and here's the card that she put on the mirrors at home. Uh, God loves you, and you bring him great joy. So every day when they look in the mirrors, they see that card. Isn't that a wonderful application? I thought it was powerful. I appreciate that. And that's why I love our students, because they they actually listen (laughs) and apply the messages. Which brings us to our topic today. We're going to talk about having the right attitude. What's, What's the attitude you would choose for 2019? Now, talking about attitudes, I want to share a very quick story with you. Um, from the life of Dr. Viktor Frankl. Uh, Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist and philosopher who was put in the Nazi concentration camps during World War II. He was at Auschwitz and then several other camps for several years. And he survived. He survived. And he made some very important observations. And I want to read one of those observations. He said, We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the camps comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. The greatest possession that you will ever own is your attitude, is your attitude. And the question is, if you could only choose one attitude, what would it be? I want to suggest to you that Jesus conveys to us in Mark chapter 2, where I'd like you to turn, the attitude that is supreme, the attitude that puts all the other tudes in life in alignment. If you can get this one going in your life, everything else will line up. Mark chapter 2 begins with Jesus coming home, it says, to Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. He's been out preaching and teaching at the various villages, and now he's on his way home. And we're not told in the Bible what house he lived in. He was a carpenter, maybe he built his own house in Capernaum, maybe he rented a house, maybe a house was given to him, but he had a house. He's in that house, and he's teaching, and Jesus taught in such a way that people's attentions were riveted to what he was saying. He had authority. Obviously, the Spirit of God was in him. And he spoke with metaphors and illustrations. It was very amazing. So, there's all kinds of people in the house and outside of the house, leaning into everything he's saying, and four friends show up. And these four friends are carrying a makeshift stretcher like a hammock with a fifth friend who's paralyzed in it. And their desire is to get their friend in front of Jesus. Because more than likely, they've either seen or heard or heard from someone who experienced a miracle from Jesus. They know he can make the blind to see, other lame people to walk, the mute to speak, And they are just meters away from the miracle they desire for their friend. Just meters away from the friend being able to perhaps walk for the first time or walk again, to run, to work, to play with his children. But they can't get to Jesus because the crowd is so thick. Now, at that point, they have options. They can go back home, come another day, but I don't know how far they came, OR I SUPPOSE THEY COULD JUST HAVE A PICNIC AND WAIT THE CROWD OUT UNTIL FINALLY EVERYBODY'S GONE AND THEN TRY TO GET THEIR FRIEND IN FRONT OF JESUS. WHAT WOULD YOU DO? IMAGINE YOU'RE BRINGING YOUR LOVED ONE, YOUR SPOUSE OR YOUR CHILD OR YOUR GRANDCHILD OR YOUR FRIEND FOR A MIRACLE. A MIRACLE MAYBE OF HEALING, A MIRACLE MAYBE OF SOME OTHER NATURE, AND YOU'RE HELD BACK BY THE CROWD. You're just going to wait it out. These guys weren't going to wait it out. They were going to do something about it. In those days, the houses had flat roofs. And there would be kind of a makeshift stair step out of stones that would take one to the top of the roof. And there weren't really very high roofs, so not like we have here in Minnesota. And people spent a lot of time on top of the roofs because it could get so hot and stuffy along the Sea of Galilee. humid. And so what these guys do is they grab that hammock each of them perhaps holding a corner or holding a rope, and they make their way up these stairs, that could not have been easy, and onto the rooftop. And hardly anybody noticed because everybody's just listening to Jesus. And then they have the audacity to start tearing apart Jesus' roof. They're pulling straw out and clay out. I can imagine Jesus inside, can't you, sitting there trying to teach, and all of a sudden dust is flying everywhere. And here's this racket on the roof. And all of a sudden, they punch through, and there's momentary daylight, and now they're trying to lower their friend. Can you visualize that? It had to be awkward. This side's too high. This side's too low. Don't let it fall out. And they get it right about eye level with Jesus. That's my imagination anyway. I wonder wonder what the expression was like on this guy's face when he finally is seeing Jesus. I imagine him smiling, kind of a toothless grin. If he has enough strength in his arms, kind of maybe like, hey, Yeshua, just drop it in. I wonder what kind of response Jesus had to him as he's completely lowered to the floor. I want you to imagine yourself going home today. You're watching a ball game, or you're reading a book, or you're having a meal, or whatever it is. And all of a sudden you hear this terrible clatter on the roof, and it's, it's not Santa Claus because we're way past Christmas. And you hear saws, and you hear hammers, and you hear ripping apart. And before you know it, there's a hole punched through your ceiling, and down comes a gurney with this guy laying on it. How many of you would call 911 right away? Or how many of you would say, I'm calling the cops. Hey, pal, you better pay for this. <laughs> Probably most of us would have an unpleasant reaction to having our house broken into in such a way what was Jesus' response to the whole thing? Verse 5 tells us. Read it with me, will you? Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man... I feel like I'm reading by myself. You can read this out loud. Do you see it? Okay, let's try it again. Ready? Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Now, when Jesus says... My child, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't mean forgiven in, like, ah, don't worry about it, I'm a carpenter, I can fix it. No, when he says your sins are forgiven, he's going deep into the man's life. He's talking about something that's very, that's very deep in the man's soul, a transaction, a spiritual transaction. Jesus, who discerns the heart, senses in that moment that there's a repentant spirit, senses the faith, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Forgiven? That's what I mentioned the four guys saying. We didn't come here for forgiveness. If we wanted forgiveness, we would have made our way to the temple in Jerusalem. We would have made sacrifices there. We would keep the law. Forgiveness isn't going to make him walk, isn't going to make him run, isn't going to make him be able to work again and play with his kids. That's not why we came. Forgiveness you gotta think about that for just a minute, don't you? Forgiveness. Forgiveness? That's what the critics said, because there were a bunch of critics there that day as well. How can he forgive? Only God can forgive. Who does this guy think he is? God? Look at verse 6 and 7. It says, But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. So you got some people who are very disappointed with what Jesus has done. Has God ever disappointed you? We talked about this last year. Sometimes it feels like he does, right? You come to him and you want him to heal you. Physically, miraculously, or you want him to provide for you, or you want him to give you that relationship to that someone special that you're searching for. And he doesn't seem to answer your deepest need, your deepest want. And other people are just thoroughly disgusted with him. Only God can forgive sins. Who does this carpenter, this layman, this amateur from Nazareth think he is? You know, it's interesting that these guys punched a hole in Jesus' ceiling. If you look at the life of Jesus carefully, he was punching a big hole in people's views and beliefs and lifestyle. Thank God he didn't heal the guy. Say, what do you mean by that? I mean, thank God he didn't heal the guy. If Jesus had healed a man, if Jesus had just looked at him and said, Oh man, this is impressive. Love your faith. Hey, you're healed. Get up and go home. And the guy gets up and takes his mat and he goes home. Yes, he'd be dancing, he'd be rejoicing, he'd be celebrating, he'd be able to pick his kids up, he'd be able to run, walk, work, swim, the whole nine yards. But he'd be as lost as ever. He'd be as though Jesus had just judged him and condemned him. Because that's not what the guy needed. The guy may have been outwardly paralyzed, but the reality is he had a paralysis of his soul that he needed rescuing from. And if Jesus doesn't heal the paralysis of his sin-filled soul, it doesn't matter how well he becomes physically, he will die spiritually, be separated from his creator. See, the man's biggest problem is your biggest problem and my biggest problem. And that is our biggest problem is never our suffering. It's our sin. And that's what Jesus came to do, is to take care of the real problem, the biggest problem. And so oftentimes when he did the miracles, they were never meant to be an end in themselves. They were meant to point to who he was. Because it says in the passage, in order to show that he had the authority to forgive sins, he healed the man. Being forgiven is way more important than being physically healed. Being forgiven is way more important than making more money. Being forgiven is way more important than finding that special person. Being forgiven is far more important than sex, which our culture is obsessed with. In fact, listen to this. Being forgiven is even more important than what has been done to you. Being forgiven is more important than the injustices and the bad breaks that you've had in life. It is supremely the most important thing because it is what reconciles you and me with God again. Look at verse 8. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, those critics, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out to the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. Hope that Blu-ray is in heaven, huh? See what that must have been like. Absolutely incredible. So here's the question. Think about this for a moment, which is easier. To say you're forgiven or to heal? I mean, when Jesus heals someone, he speaks, right? And his word affects healing. He speaks, and the blind man sees. He speaks, the leprous cleanse. He speaks, the lame walk. He speaks, the mute can speak. He speaks, and even the dead are raised to life again. But to forgive is infinitely harder than to heal with a spoken word, because to forgive means that God must die. It means that God must die. It's really costly to forgive. And it costs Christ his life in order for all of us to experience God's forgiveness. So I want you to jot this down, okay? The greatest attitude of all is Jesus' attitude of forgiveness. That's the master attitude. The greatest attitude of all is the attitude of our Lord's, the attitude of forgiveness. And if you have that attitude in your life, the attitude of Jesus living in you, living through you, it'll take all the other toods in your life and get them aligned. Get forgiveness down, God's forgiveness, and everything else in your life is going to line up. Everything else in your life is going to line up. But I want to remind you, it's costly. It's costly. You know, isn't it interesting how often we will go to God, but we'll go to God for the wrong Savior? You ever notice that? We go to God for what we think will make us content and happy and peaceful. If I have this, if I have that, if I have him, if I have her, then ah, life will be good. And thank God he doesn't give the Savior we're looking for or the Saviors we're looking for. Even after we have the true Savior, don't we still spend a lot of time looking for another Savior as well? It's like, he's not good enough. i got to have more. I like the way Tim Keller puts it in commenting on this passage. He says, it's as though Jesus is saying, I'm the only Savior that if you get me, I'm the only Savior that if you get me will fulfill you and if you fail me will forgive you. I love that. I'm the only Savior that if you get me will fulfill you and if you fail me will forgive you. Money won't forgive you. Sex won't forgive you. Success won't forgive you. A great body won't forgive you. All the things, all the saviors our world is looking for, politically, economically, socially, won't forgive you. And ultimately, don't really fulfill you. But Christ does. And that's why forgiveness is so important. And that's why I want you to jot this down, make it kind of personal. By God's help, so you can't do it on your own, I aim daily. So this isn't one and done. It's something i got to aim at daily. By God's help, I aim daily to practice. That means it's something i just got, I got to put into practice every day. All right? To practice receiving and celebrating God's gift of forgiveness in my life every day. That's my challenge for you in 2019. You know, I've given you a lot of positive fun homework. I like to get up every day and remind yourself the Father of Jesus is very fond of me. Have you worked on your Irish accent? The Father of Jesus is very fond of me. Remember the story? If you weren't here last weekend, go online and watch it and secondly, every day to take a shower in God's forgiveness. Literally, stand, imagine yourself standing at the foot of the cross, your arms open wide, and letting him pour on you undeserved, unearned grace and forgiveness. It's not because you've been so good. The Bible tells us that even while we were sinners, Christ what? Christ died for us. So different than how we do forgiveness. We forgive people based on our mood. We forgive people based on how repentant they are. Do you know that God does not forgive you because you're repentant? A lot of us have that messed up theology in us. God does not forgive one because you're repentant. If that were the case, that would be works. That would be my effort. It is repentance that precede that precedes forgive. It is forgiveness that precedes repentance. Because God is forgiving, I can repent. And God's forgiving, and he goes on being forgiving. It's his nature, and we're talking about that nature living through us. But listen carefully. That nature can't live through me if I don't know it in my heart, if I'm not celebrating it in my life every day, even on my worst days, even when I've been an absolute jerk the night before. Get up the next morning and open your arms and receive his forgiveness. Which leads you then to confess and repent. And the Bible says if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness that's written to believers in 1 John 1.9. Why can he do that? Because he has a forgiving nature toward you and toward me. So here's the question. How can you know if that nature's taking over your life? How can you know if you are becoming increasingly a God-forgiving follower of Christ? Well, the next story helps us answer that question. Listen to what it says. Verse 13. Then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, who we also know as Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. So Capernaum is at the border between two little kingdoms. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was split up among three of his kids. And where the two, the one in the north and the one in the middle, met, to go into the next one, you had to pay taxes. You had to pay a toll. Follow me, be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. The Greek is harmatoloi, which literally means preeminent sinners. Sinners known for their vices. Tax collectors who were hated, they're seen as traitors, and they always pocketed a little bit more money for themselves. Prostitutes, thieves, and other such scum says there were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers, but when the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I have not come to call on those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I want you to go back to verse 15. I want to point something out that uh, may not seem so important, but I think it is. In the Greek of that verse, Levi is never mentioned. Matthew's never mentioned. But some translators, like in the New Living Translation and the NIV, assume that Jesus has gone to the house of Levi. But in the Greek, it doesn't say that. In the Greek, it literally reads, and it happened that as he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus. So scholars look at it and they go, well, who is his house? Well, because he just told Levi, follow me, it must be Levi's house. That's the possessive. But scholars like N.T. Wright and others say, no, this is Jesus' house, not Levi's house that this is happening in. And his house now has a new skylight besides. I tend to think that probably is the way we should interpret it because it even takes on more meaning, and I'll tell you why. Let me quote to you from a theologian. His name is Marcus Borg who says one of the most striking features of Jesus' ministry was the meals he shared with sinners, that is, outcasts. Pharisees and others would not eat with somebody who was as impure, and no decent person would share a meal with an outcast. To this very day, if I go to the Middle East and I have a Palestinian invite me over to his home for dinner, it is more than just saying, come to my house for dinner. It is saying, I want to be friends with you. It's a genuine, radical kind of friendship gesture. If an Orthodox Jew says, "Come over to my house for dinner," what they're inviting you, what they're inviting you over to, is called a mikdash me'at. Because an Orthodox Jew sees their home as kind of a miniature temple, so to be invited in means we're going to share in my miniature temple, in my little synagogue, in my in my special place. We're going to share a friendship before Yahweh, before God. So here's Jesus, if it is his house, inviting the worst, these despicables, into his little temple, so to speak, and saying, I want to be friends with you. It was scandalous, wasn't it? I mean, he invited the kind of people over that most of us would never want to invite over to our homes and be part of our lives. How do you know when the nature of God's forgiveness is taking over your life? Listen carefully. you. Become non-judgmental. You know that the forgiveness of God's grace is taking over your life because you stop judging people. It just diminishes in your life. And yet it is one of the biggest challenges that we face. We are so prone in our sinful natures to be Judgmental toward others. Say, what kind of judgment are you talking about? I'm talking about superficial judgment. And everybody here has done it today. You've been doing it while I've been speaking in the last 20 or so minutes. We all judge constantly. We judge people by their looks, we judge people by the, how they dress, how they act. We just quick, quick, subconsciously, we make these snap judgments about them. That's gotta stop. We judge people hypocritically. It's got to stop. Isn't it amazing how you can see faults in other people's lives and normally what we don't like in others is what we don't like about ourselves, the psychologists tell us. We can be so harsh in our judgment we find something wrong. Man, we just like to rail on that, don't we? We kind of feel empowered. Found it. Gotcha. Sometimes our judgment is so self-righteous we judge others to make ourselves feel better. Look at me, compare it to you. I must be pretty good. God must really like me because I'm not that bad. And how often our judgments are just untrue. It's something I heard that's called gossip. It's something I assume. It's something I saw on Facebook or I saw it tweeted out or it's, it's something somebody I heard talking about and we run to the conclusion it must be true. If you're invaded with the grace and forgiveness of God, that stops in your life. You say, well, does that mean we can't talk, we're not supposed to talk about sin? No, I didn't say that. You got to speak the truth. You got to point out sin if you love somebody, but it's like raising a kid. Here's a here's question I want to ask you. And this came to my mind as so I kept thinking about this more and more. When you, when you are apt to judge somebody, what's your motive? What's your motive? Oftentimes, our motive is wrong. Our motive is to make them feel guilty or make them feel shameful. That's not our job. My job is not to make you feel guilty. My job is not to bring shame into your life. My job is not to condemn you. My job is not to decide if you're going to go to heaven or go to hell. That's not my job. That's God's job. I need to leave it with Him. My job is to point the truth out in a loving, gracious way. My job is to come at it from the motive of reconciliation and forgiveness. And I'm telling you, I have grown up in a brand of Christianity that approaches it from the motive of guilt and shame. And it's hard to break that when it's been in your life all the time. That's where so many Christians are these days. Or, yes, we go to the very other extreme of it. We never speak about the truth. And if people don't know the truth, they can't understand their sin in their life. And if they can't understand the sin in their life, they don't know that God offers forgiveness. So I've got to come at it with a motive of, you know, I'm a sinner who's experienced the grace and love of God, his forgiveness. I'm coming to you because I want you to know the truth, and I want you to know how much God loves you and how he forgives as well. And what a person chooses to do, that's up to them. It's not my job to be their God. What I've got to do is realize what he's done for me and let that motivate me when I'm, when I'm talking to others, when I'm pointing out issues in their life, whether it's my kids, whether it's my friends, whether it's somebody at work. And that, you can't do that if you yourself haven't been showered with God's grace and forgiveness. My friend Brendan Manning writes, at the foot of the cross, we recognize ourselves as forgiven enemies of God and are empowered to extend forgiveness and reconciliation. As long as we continue to live as if we are what we do, as if we are what we have, as if we are what other people think about us, we will remain filled with judgments, opinions, evaluations, and condemnations. We will remain addicted to the need to put other people in their place. Only when we claim the love of the crucified Christ with heartfelt conviction, the love that transcends all judgments, can we overcome all fear of judgment? When we have become completely free from the need to judge others, we will also become completely free from the fear of being judged. The experience of not having to judge cannot coexist with the fear of being judged, and the experience of the non judgmental love of the crucified Savior cannot coexist with the need to judge others. Here's what I want you to write down last thing. By God's help, I aim daily. Again, it's a daily practice. Can't do it on my own. I need God's help. To practice a forgiving attitude rather than a judgmental spirit. God, help me every day to practice a forgiving attitude rather than a judgmental spirit. And listen, that happens as the nature of Jesus takes over your nature. It happens to the degree you understand How forgiving, how absolutely forgiving God has been to you. Henry Nouwen tells a story of an old man who would go out every day and sit under this massive tree along the Ganges River, and there he would meditate. One day, he woke up after being there meditating, and he looked out, and he could see the scorpion that was trying not to drown. It was on top of the water. And it was moving toward the large, extending roots of that tree into the river bank. And so the old man got out on one of the long roots, stretched himself over it, reached his hand way out to try to rescue the scorpion, and the moment his hand touched the scorpion, it stung him, and boy, did it hurt. It hurt, painful. Shock went right through his arm and up into his shoulder. But he stuck his hand out again. And he stretched and he stretched to try to get a hold of that scorpion. And this time when he touched the scorpion, the scorpion was ready and his tail was pointed just the right way and it punctured him deeply and released more venom. And immediately his hand began to swell and the place where his puncture began to bleed. A stranger was walking by, saw the whole thing unfold. He said, Hey, old man, how can you be so stupid trying to rescue an ugly, evil creature like that? Don't you realize you're risking your life? You could die trying to save that ungrateful scorpion. The old man collected himself, turned his head, stretched out on that root, and calmly said to him, My friend, just because it is the scorpion's nature to sting, that does not change my nature to save. Just because it is human nature to sin and to do evil and to crucify the Savior does not change the nature of God to forgive. Aren't you thankful? None of our actions, none of our sinfulness changes the nature of God to forgive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you and pray this day that you would change our nature increasingly to become more like Jesus, to take the forgiveness that we've received and extend it to those who are in our midst. We need all the help you can give us, O God, because in and of ourselves, we are absolutely incapable of doing this. Lord, I think about those men digging through the roof to get to you. Some of us, Father, may need to do some digging this coming week to get to that place where we can forgive others who've hurt us so deeply. Lord, we'll let you decide their future. We'll let you deal with what they've done wrong. You said, vengeance is mine. You're the perfect judge. May we be released from having to play God. May we offer forgiveness. Whether they repent or not, Lord, and receive it is up to them. They'll have to answer to you, but may we convey your grace. In Christ's name, amen.